0: Hello everyone, and thanks for hanging out with us for the Behind the Numbers Weekly Listen and E-Marketer Podcast. This is the Friday show that doesn't know why it came into the office. Do you guys find when you go in, people, we just had this, it's the only place where people are surprised to see you. You'd be mortified if you went <laughs> home and your partner was like, what are you doing here?
1: I feel like I announce when I'm coming enough so that people are not surprised to see me in the office because I'm there rare enough that I feel the need to be like, hey, just so y'all know, I'm in the office. These dates out of this month. And so I've, people know. But
0: then isn't it a little bit heartbreaking when you, well, maybe it's just me. I do that and there's like two people in and both of those people <laughs>
1: yes. had no idea. It 100% feels there. like just I a gut punch. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Way to show up. I prefer not to tell people so they can't hide their (laughs) disappointment. Why are you here? (laughs) Sound strategy.
0: Anyway, in today's episode, Google is finally killing cookies. So now what?
3: Google's ready to lay this a few times, you know, will they pay more attention to that or will they take the consumer side and the regulatory issues and go ahead and push this thing forward?
0: Can Google continue their search dominance?
1: The implications of that ruling are potentially enormous, depending on A, how the ruling like in which party wins, and also then, if the DOJ wins, what remedy the judge chooses to move forward with.
2: Americans cancelling more of their streaming services. I think it's kind of galling how many of these services have, instead of essentially offering a cheaper tier, they are basically just changing the rules on everybody.
0: Apple's mixed reality headset, Peloton's content hub. TikTok and how one kid just completed Tetris for the first time. That's why it's a big deal. Join me for this episode. We have three people all on the digital advertising and media desk all senior analysts. We start with Evelyn Mitchell-Wolf, based in Virginia.
1: Hello, everyone. Nice to see you.
0: Hello there. We're also joined by Max Willens, who's typically based in Philadelphia, but is coming to us live-ish from our New York studio. Yo. And finally, we have Ross Benish, based just above New York City.
3: Howdy, Marcus. Hey, chap. (laughs) Some very weird
0: introductions, (laughs) but very on brand. So what do we have in store for you? We have the story of the week. Google is finally killing cookies, supposedly, probably, maybe, should be, so now what? We then move to a brand new segment, so I won't tell you about that till a little bit later in the show. Cliffhanger, that is not really that suspenseful, just you'll figure it out later. Dinner Party data is how we wrap up uh, the episode uh, with some random trivia, but of course we start with the story of the week. So Google is finally killing cookies. Now what? Google is finally killing cookies advertisers still aren't ready, suggests Miles Cooper and Patience Hagen of the Wall Street Journal. As of last week, Google started a limited test that restricts cookies for 1% of the people who use its Chrome browser. It's the world's most popular. That 1% is... 30 million people though, so it's a lot of folks. By the end of the year, Google plans to get rid of cookies for all Chrome-using folks. Cookies are those things that track us across the internet so that advertisers can target us with ads. The problem is the industry is nowhere near ready, according to a lot of folks, but specifically Anthony Katzer, chief executive of the IAB Tech Lab. So I'll let you all pile in because you're all on this very digital advertising and media desk, but what are you all paying most attention to when it comes to cookies going
3: away this year? Well, it'll be interesting to see if Google pays much attention to the complaints of ad industry lobbyists. You know, you mentioned the IAB tech lab says that advertisers aren't ready, that the timing remains poor, that they need more time. Uh, Google's already delayed this a few times. You know, will they pay more attention to that or will they, you know take the consumer side and the regulatory issues and go ahead and push this thing forward. You know.
0: Is that a fair criticism? Because one of the lines in this article, other ad executives said Google's schedule hasn't given the industry enough time to prepare. I mean, they kind of brought up in 2020. It seems like they've had years, but it's a big deal. Does that sound like a, a fair criticism in your opinion?
2: I guess I would say it, it does depend on which kind of stakeholder group you're most aligned with. Right. But I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, One could argue that we need more time to get back to parity with what the industry was used to. So Raptive, which is a, a large ad monetization services provider to publishers, had some really early data that they unveiled last Thursday. And based on the the numbers out of the shoot, the non-cookied Chrome users are monetizing at a 30% lower rate than cookied users are, mm. which, you know, I don't know of a whole lot of CROs that would be pleased with that kind of a drop. That's better than the delta between a cookied Chrome user and a user on Safari, for example. But that's largely, I think, a, a vestige of how little interest there is in those audiences because they're not cookied. But I think that, you know, I would sort of take a slightly different version of Ross's same point and say... I'm really curious to see if the Competition Markets Authority in the UK, which is kind of the one essentially holding Google to account here, if they are receptive to the arguments by people like Tony Katzer or the folks at Raptive or any of the other, you know, kind of ad tech stakeholders who have, you know, yelled and screamed that everything in the privacy sandbox isn't cutting it. The Trade Desk dropped out of it a couple of weeks ago. So I'm just really interested to see whether the CMA is sort of moved by the calls for a further delay in this process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the CMA is also one of the big things that I'm watching as the cookie list journey continues to unfold. Personally, I think that, I mean, there's always a chance that, that Google's target deprecation date could shift again, but I think it's very unlikely mm. unless the CMA intervenes and deems one or more privacy sandbox solutions insufficient. But as far as whether there is enough time left in this timeline toward cookie deprecation, I think there is definitely a valid argument because only now with this 1% Cookie deprecation. Only now is is there a an actually cookie less testing environment. All the tests up until this point have had to employ cookies in some way, shape, or form because cookies were still a, a massive part of the ecosystem and they still are a massive part of the ecosystem. The scale of it is a problem still. So whether results are statistically significant is another kind of thing that can come into play here. There's a lot going on. And so I do think there is an argument that there should be more time between when there is some cookie deprecation and when full deprecation occurs. But to Max and Ross's points, the industry has had years, literally years, <laughs> to prepare for this, at least in terms of putting their feelers out, uh, understanding what solutions are out there, and what the pros and cons are, what their first-party data assets are, how it all fits together. And you know, there's only so much more that more time can do on that mm-hmm. front.
2: One thing that I, I'm also really interested in watching as this kind of unfolds is that when google first made this announcement there was kind of one of the sort of cynical arguments about whether this would happen or how it would happen was where else is this money going to go and since then we've had retail media become immensely important and immensely you know popular among marketers and you know i would say that there's a healthy if you were to do a venn diagram of sort of you know what retail media inventory can do and what you know open web display inventory can do like there's quite a lot in both circles that doesn't touch, but there's enough in the middle that I think if you were, you know, say a CPG brand, for example, you might just say, you know what, this is too complicated. Let's just pour more money into a Walmart Connect or into Amazon or into Instacart and just see if that, you know, replaces and delivers comparable value. Mm-hmm. And so I think that watching to see whether something like that happens is could very much be worth some folks' while. So I'm curious to
0: see how this plays out throughout the year, because it does seem as though there's a bit of a, if it ain't broke yet, don't fix it slash try something else mentality here. Because some data to back that, so according to 33 Across, cookies were used for nearly 80% or more of programmatic ad buyers across industries as of late Q3 2023, with many advertisers increasing their cookie ad spend. Because it's still a thing, so why would you get ready to switch over or be as prepared as you need to be when it's continued to be a thing? And, Evelyn, to your point, we've seen the can get kicked down the road so much. People are maybe anticipating or hoping that that happens again. How do you think this does play out in twenty twenty four? Is it uh, all of a sudden, you know, the day before everyone's panicking and it's, it's kind of like kind of GDPR, if, anything, if, if that's anything to go by? Or, or do you see people actually going to be relatively prepared for when this happens?
3: You know, Evelyn has a report about this coming out or maybe it's ready out. Oh.
1: Are we talking about no idea. the H1 report? Yeah, I think that's the one that,
3: that I just read. <laughs> a lot of like, reports on this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the one that Ross is talking about, I think, is the H1 2024 programmatic ad spending forecast reports. I mean, this is the biggest thing that's happening in the programmatic ecosystem and the digital advertising ecosystem in a long time. And I think there's going to be a fair amount of chaos. I do think, you know, people, some brands have spent the past couple of years preparing. So there's kind of a, it's a mixed bag as to how prepared an individual brand is, the smaller the brand, the less likely they are to be sufficiently prepared because they just don't have the resources to be testing really thoroughly, to be putting dollars into unproven solutions. They just don't have that luxury. But I do think that like GDPR and similar kinds of interventions in the status quo, mm-hmm. th- there is going to be a lot of discombobulation, a lot of trial and error, a lot of confusion and a good bit of the like the long tail of advertisers just waiting for everyone else to figure it out before they switch over until the t- clock runs out. And then it's just kind of...
0: Right. <laughs> Final question here. Are we surprised that the ban or the deprecation of cookies is taking place in Q3? in the, like, the quarter literally before Q4, which is peak ad season. you surprised that they didn't get
3: rid of them in Q1 or Q2 when things are a little bit calmer for advertisers? No. I guess it makes nice sense to just cleave it at the end of the year, but okay. practically that will cause some disruption.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, folks, that's all we've got time for for the story of the week. Time now for the analysis of the week. And today we've got a brand new segment. It's called Move the Needle Out of 10. I'd say we're working on the name but we're not that's the best we've got uh where i read out four stories and our contestants uh, have to tell us how much each story moves the needle the needle will change based on the story out of 10 and why so four stories we start with the first one and uh, we'll start with evelyn we're talking about google's search dominance is this the beginning of the end for google's dominance in search questions greta suarez of quartz writing that the tech giant's market share is being challenged by an increasingly crowded field. She does point out, in October, Google held 92% of the worldwide search market, according to StatCounter, but that is down slightly year-on-year, but not much considering ChatGPT was introduced and generative AI models have been increasing usage. Microsoft's Bing, their market share was at 3%, and Russian search engine Yandex held about 2%. Overtaking Yahoo last April to take an extremely distant third place. So Google is way, way out in front. But the question is, how much will Google search dominance get challenged by 2025 out of 10? Evelyn.
1: I'm going to give two answers. <laughs> One okay. for... Not sure
0: you're playing the game right, but go on.
1: Well, because I feel we'll like see. we have to take into account the historic antitrust trial that the Department of Justice oh, brought against Oh, 3D Google. chess. I uh, see what you're doing. Yeah, because uh, I mean, the implications of that ruling are potentially enormous, depending on A, how the ruling, like in which party wins, and also then if the DOJ wins what remedy the judge chooses to move forward with. So that's a lot of kind of up in the air. And we should know at least what ruling we're dealing with by, I think, somewhere around May of this year. Okay. So all that is said, though, I think if the judge rules in favor of Google, I will say that the needle will be moved three out of 10. I'm grading on a curve here, based on the mm-hmm. heyday of the late 2010s when I would have given it a zero. So, And this is also excluding retail media, which has been gaining share of our search ad spending forecast, but is excluded from the analysis in the piece that you just mentioned. And you know, the way that most regular folks think about the search market is in search engines. So I'm throwing the retailers right. out of here. But so three is if Google wins the trial. And okay. if the DOJ wins the trial, I'd say more like six or seven.
0: Wow, six or seven. Okay, Mm -hmm. so six or seven in terms of how much Google search dominance will get challenged by 2025 or three if they win the case. Max?
2: Yeah, I think Evelyn's point about the wrinkle of the DOJ cases is really on point. I basically presume that Google is going to win. And consequently, I also gave it a three. I think the one Mm -hmm. thing that you might have pointed to if we were doing this last year would have been you know, as Satya Nadella put it, Microsoft made Google dance by unloading ChatGPT on the world, except now Google is at the dance and they have Bard. And even though Google does not have a great track record of introducing and scaling products that are, you know, super different from search, I haven't seen enough either in the user experience or in just kind of general consumer behavior to f- feel like the advent of Gen AI is going to radically shake or disrupt the balance of power here. So I give them a three.
3: Russ? So if I follow this um, structure that the other two analysts have set up, I'm going to go with a two out of ten. If Google wins, I think they just keep trucking along. You know, Amazon's taking some search market and, and source are some other players, but you're still going to see most ad dollars going toward Google. But if Google lost, give it an eight of ten because... It can be broken up like Standard Oil, and that would be a huge change in the search market. Now, having a range of two out of 10 to eight out of 10, you could say (laughs) my (laughs) response is meaningless.
0: Well, no, because it's not the... It's uh, two scenarios, right? So it can't be like a three, four, five, six, seven. But no, very good. There's very good uh, context because we do have a a lot going on with regards to... But that eight out of 10, though, I
3: guess that wouldn't happen necessarily like within the next 12 months, like you were asking... That's like an right. eventual
0: thing, you know? Yeah. Well, by 2025, yeah, it could be the end of 2025, but yes, even yeah, then.
3: They, they, even if the DOJ would unroll it out, I mean, you probably wouldn't really see an effect in the ad market significantly till like the next year, I would think.
1: Yeah, and, and the search business is so core to everything that Google does. I would not be surprised if it took years and years to unravel this behemoth of a company and yeah. and spit search out on its own.
0: Okay, so what you're saying is it it was a terrible question. All
1: right, the
0: segment's off to a a great start. Let's move to story two uh, in hopes of improving slightly. It's a low bar. We'll start with Max, Americans cancelling more of their streaming services. Hulu, Netflix and others are turning to bundles, discounts and ad-supported plans as customer defections rise, writes Sarah Krause of the Wall Street Journal. Two supporting data points here. One, customer defections across premium streaming services rose to 6.3%. In November, from 5.1 a year prior. And number two, the share of US subscribers to major streaming services who have cancelled at least three of them over the past two years. Share of US subscribers to major streaming services who have cancelled at least three of them in the past two years. That share leapt from 10% of people doing that to 25% from 2021 to 2023, according to November data from Antenna. But Max, how much do you expect streamers to move to ad-supported video services out
2: of 10, and why? So I'm going to go with 3 out of 10... Primarily because that same article uh, included data from Netflix, which said that 31% of their new customer subscribers opted for an ad-supported tier, which is basically 3 in 10. Netflix has oh, an nice. outsized uh, role in this market. They essentially make the rules for and set customer expectations. And so I think that that's basically the, the prison that I, I looked at this through. Very nice. I would also just say kind of as an aside that I, I think it's kind of galling how many of these services have, instead of essentially offering a cheaper tier, they are basically just changing the rules on everybody so amazon for example you know in about two weeks three weeks is going to make me give them even more money every month because i don't want to look at ads while i watch their increasingly subpar uh streaming video content
1: oh shots fired S-
2: sorry amazon but I, uh, my uh my <laughs> uh my spinoff uh streaming content review podcast is is coming in 2022 2024 <laughs> Uh, no, but yeah, three out of ten. Sorry, I, I've, I've talked too much. Three no, you kid, Russ.
3: I'm gonna give it a, a six point five out of ten for um. Oh, specific. Yeah, very specific. Well, actually, more specific would be six point five three. But um, that would be too much. That'd be yeah. that'd be too much. I've gone too far. I'll just go six point five. So what, <laughs> what Max was saying, Amazon is putting ads on by default. That's gonna be annoying for consumers, but it does push more people to ad supported. So Netflix is obviously like the king. In, in this space, that's why like, I would never give this like a 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 because most Netflix subscribers are still going to ha- not have ads. But the move by Amazon as well as Netflix introducing advertising relatively recently makes me give this a mark above 5. Okay, Evelyn.
1: I am going to say 6 mostly because mm. Ross really... Convinced me there and I was on the fence to begin
0: with. Okay. That's not really the point of the segment.
1: (laughs) I had six to begin with, but I was after Max spoke, I was like, maybe I should kind of back off. But no, I think six is right. And I'm going to bring it back to the Google trial again, because we have just heard a ton of testimony about why defaults are really powerful. And if Amazon just defaults all of their Prime Video customers to ad supported, which is the plan as of now, then the majority of people are going to stay with that default, the ad supported default, and not pay more to avoid ads.
0: All right, very good. I'm taking notes because uh, it's the first time we're doing this segment as we go. My first note is write better questions. By the way, I
3: think Evelyn called me an influencer. She said I, <laughs> no, I changed her that's mind. Not, so
0: that's a, a leap. Um, okay, let's move to <laughs> Story three, let's start with Ross, Apple's mixed reality headset. After revealing its long-awaited VR headset last June, Apple is ready to put the three and a half thousand dollar vision pro on sale notes emma roth of the verge the device lets you switch between ar and vr using a dial on the side of the headset so mixed reality and folks can also navigate the device without a controller using eye head and hand tracking but ross how much do you expect apple's new headset to move the mixed reality needle out of 10
3: Uh, two out of 10 i know apple is a big Mm. consumer products company that most of their products are successful but VR going back to Nintendo's Virtual Boy has been a very tough sell all the way through Facebook's Oculus. So I think this will be Apple's Virtual Boy.
1: Well, I what think, a sentence. I, think,
3: I don't get most of Ross's references,
0: but I definitely don't it's get It's
3: a that one. 90s video game console that everything was read in 3D and you had to like look into it and it made your head hurt after like 45 minutes. Nintendo lost a lot of money.
0: Okay. Max knows. Evelyn, you also? Just me. Oh, no, you're with me. Okay, that's, that's rare for, some, for someone all right, else I'm going to gonna all send say. you a
3: link to Virtual Boy and Plinko after this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just add them to the list. Uh, Evelyn.
1: I am going to say four because based on reviews of demos of the Vision Pro, it sounds like it's a game-changing piece of tech, but the price is just too high. Victoria, please insert in this economy meme. Right here. Uh because we were just I mean, we were just talking about people canceling their streaming subscriptions. Very few people are going to drop thirty five hundred dollars on this when they already drop well over a thousand dollars on their iPhones.
0: Wait, hang on. Is the in this economy, is that a meme? I say yeah, that.
1: Yeah. It is a meme.
0: I came up with that. Oh didn't I?
1: Did I come up with the meme? You did not. Marcus, that would make you an influencer too.
0: I am. What do you mean would make? <laughs> am. Am kind of. I'm low key famous as my friends call me. <laughs> They're being very generous. I'm not famous at all. Ross. No, you went already.
2: Don't you dare go again. Max. Uh, I'm going to give this 0. 0.3499, which oh is the my price goodness. of it, but I know, listen. <laughs> oh, I see what you've done. I'll take it. Well played. Well there played. Brought it back. I mean, and it's basically, I invoke the price because as Evelyn said, it's too damn expensive. Um, and iPhones, you know, and other devices like it benefit enormously from the financing options available and offered by, you know, wireless companies. And I just don't see you know, T-Mobile or Verizon saying, you know, you can finance a Vision Pro on us because it doesn't, you know, affect their business models at all. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, this is going to be like a lot of Apple devices in that it deepens the commitment people have to other products in its ecosystem. So I think the most impressive kind of element of this thing's capabilities right now is the, the FaceTime capability. So just kind of imagine feeling like the person you're facetiming with is not inside of a tiny box but is literally across you know a table from you mm-hmm. that's very cool it is not going to make me spend $3,500 to buy one but yeah yeah so zero point
3: there is a precedent in this I, I went to the wikipedia page for virtual boy and it says its failure has been attributed to its high price so <laughs> there you go it's just history going around again the type of qualitative analysis quality research reading wikipedia <laughs> during a podcast
1: was it called virtual boy because of the game boy i think they were or, yeah they were
3: going for that but it was the first system that was 3d rather than like a 2d scroller so it was, it was virtual like it was supposed to be like virtual reality there's a virtual reality craze like in the early 90s you know movies like lawnmower man they're, they're trying to like go on that I don't know if you remember that at all. I just,
1: you know, I feel like virtual person would be really inclusive. <laughs> it's for the oh, you're ladies. talking about
3: the gender. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a Game Boy. What's weird about that is Game Boy had more female users than other Nintendo systems. I think it was like 40% of Game Boy users, at least when they released the Pokemon games, were female users. But yet it was called Game Boy like that. That should have been game person more uh, than any gaming system. Oh. Whereas like a PlayStation probably had like a 70-30 or a 80-20 split. These are good points. I'm going to have to rename this segment again to Tangential Trivia.
1: I think, um, Marcus, you can just you, you, you can, just, you though, can put that at the end of the episode. So anyone yeah, that wants to see you can cut everything I've said about
2: Virtual Boy you if have you, have you cut want cut most we'll... of this segment. we just cut the whole segment. <laughs> it should be one big outtake. Just leave it with Ross saying it, history repeats itself yeah. over and yeah. over yeah. <laughs> again.
1: It's
2: oh. the same thing over <laughs> yeah. and over again. I did think it was interesting – Quickly go
0: back to mixed reality uh, headset. Apple revealing the pricing for Zeiss prescription lenses that users can get with it. I think it's an extra couple of hundred dollars. Are people going to want to pay that as well as three and a half thousand dollars? This is more for the developers. The price will obviously come down, but I did think that was interesting solve because we've been talking for a long time about the the fact that people wear glasses. Are they going to want to put a VR headset on on top of them? And this seems like maybe you pop in and out a prescription lens oh um, at some point down the road. No, it
1: just made me feel, I, oh. I just have big feelings about needing to wear glasses because they're so expensive, but I didn't choose this. I did not choose to be nearly blind. And I really feel like if you, <laughs> it's a vision should be a public commodity. <laughs> I won't go <laughs> any deeper than that. Mic drop.
3: Where are
0: where have, we, where have we landed here? Let's move to Story 4. Segments all We're going to nationalize place. the eyeglass. <laughs> so derailed. Uh, story 4. Story four. Peloton, Peloton Content Hub on TikTok. The fitness company has formed an exclusive partnership with TikTok to create a workout content hub on the short-form video platform. Dean Seal of the Journal says Peloton noted, this is the first time it will produce Custom social content for a partner for this outside of its own channels, with content including live Peloton classes, class clips, original instructor series, celebrity collaborations, and ongoing creator partnerships. We start with Evelyn again. How much will this deal move the needle for Peloton and then also for TikTok, both out of 10?
1: For Peloton, I'm going to say like maybe two, probably more like a one. I think it's a step in the right direction. I know there's a like a cult following of people that have bikes and regularly attend classes, but it takes a lot of money and physical space to have a bike at home. So ramping up the side of the business that requires less investment and less equipment in a home gym is a good idea. And I think TikTok's a good choice for Peloton. I just don't expect this to make waves because there's already a ton of fitness content on TikTok and social media. And then on the flip side, I think it's probably like a one for TikTok too, because there is already plenty of fitness content there. It's not like they're hurting for it.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Max? Yeah, I give this uh, ones to both sides. In a way, this is sort of, you know, and that's kind of like throwing Peloton a bone. They have nowhere to go but up, you know. At the end of 2020, they were trading at $155 a share. They're down to $6. I guess this will kind of keep them at the front of the you know brains of their next generation of buyers, but their core product is too expensive for most of TikTok's users. There's a sea of fitness content on the platform already, as, as Evelyn said, mm-hmm. and I am not high on this, would say. Ross?
3: Three out of 10 for Peloton. It's a nice, easy marketing tactic for them, but it's not going to fix their core business issues. Uh, for TikTok, one out of ten, it, it doesn't hurt them at all. It's just in the vast amount of content that's on TikTok, this will be like pretty small potatoes. Mm. Okay.
1: I love um, potatoes.
3: Okay. <laughs> well, hot potatoes can be big potatoes, and this ain't big potatoes. Small potatoes. Any other food-related? Mm. Not, <laughs> nothing's <laughs> coming to mind right now. Food-related
2: commentary. is feeling like a sack of potatoes.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dead and heavy and <laughs> awesome. All right, that's uh,
0: that's it for the segment. It's probably it's likely the last time you'll see that segment. Um, you'll be pleased to know <laughs> we killed it. Um, yeah, you <laughs> killed it. You killed it dead. All right, folks, it's time now for dinner party data. The part of the show where we tell you about the most interesting thing we've learned this week.
3: we start with ross for no reason at all so it's been almost 700 days since central park in new york city has had over one inch of snow and the previous record that's that's a record that's a long time it's almost two years the previous record was only 383 days set in 1998 so uh, young kids living in manhattan are going a crazy amount of time without getting any snow that's sad. I thought you were going to take a second to do the math. You're like, 700 days, that means
0: one two second, one second. two two years. That's nearly two years. <laughs> but you nailed that fast math, Ross. You crushed it. That's fascinating. Over an inch. That's yeah, not
3: much. And we, we I bring that up anything, because there was yeah. just a storm that blew through the area. Uh, upstate New York, parts of Jersey, Connecticut, all got snow, but Manhattan didn't get much. Nothing.
1: Yeah, I mean, with how gross snow gets, like, immediately upon touching the ground in in Manhattan, I don't know, it's like, I'm sad for the kids, but also.
3: A lot of shoes have been saved. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. Uh, very nice, Evelyn.
1: Okay, so I have some data from YouGov that was, uh, the survey was fielded end of September, early October of last year. What fashion trends do Americans love and hate? And I'm hoping that I will uh, get some really enthusiastic (laughs) reactions from from you two here, so... Look um, how I'm dressed. Well, you might be pleased to know that Americans' top most loved fashion trend is flannel shirts.
0: Black on black. And graphic
1: tees. Bomber jackets.
0: I own a flannel. Oh.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I feel like the top three are pretty solid, and leggings are number four, which personally, I'm into leggings. And then the least most liked, so the most hated... Are, uh, shoulder pads, parachute pants, and then sagging pants is the least liked fashion trend.
2: Oh, yeah, not since the 90s. Mm. Also starting to feel bad that I allowed my mother to throw out my (laughs) Jenkos. I'm just kidding. I I don't feel bad about it at all. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) None of us do. Uh, Max, you're up. All right, so I started the year full of hope, like so many of you. And so I I started thinking about reasons to be optimistic, reasons to be, you know, excited about the future. And um, it drew me to the topic of fusion, which um, I think about all the time, and which the kind of preceding joke apparently in the scientific community is that fusion is, you know, basically 30 years away from being 30 years away. And that's, that's always been kind of the the joke about it. But a bunch of stuff has happened in the last year that is making people feel like, this might not just be a theoretical exercise, so uh, last year, a research group achieved basically a net positive fusion reaction, meaning that they were able to generate more power than it took to initiate the reaction in the first place. and. Since that's happened, a ton of uh, venture capital has poured into this space. So there are about over 40 different uh, fusion startups out in the wild. And last year, 14 of them raised money uh, to the tune of over two and a half billion dollars. One of which, called Helion, is building a reactor power plant prototype that they, again, also hope will generate a net positive reaction. They claim that they're gonna have a fusion power plant up and running by 2028. A lot of scientists think that's ridiculous. I hope that they are wrong about it being ridiculous. The general consensus, according to a, an article I read in the MIT Tech Review, is that it's probably closer to 2040 before we, we get uh, fusion power as an option, but, you know, just to find some kind of balm to apply to my, you know, brain and heart after reading stories about climate change, stories about uh, fossil fuels, stories about waste, it's it's nice to imagine that. We might, you know, MacGyver ourselves a solution to the problems that we're creating for ourselves. So,
0: when Max started talking, if anyone else googled "what is fusion," you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's now in my search history.
1: It took me a minute to to understand you meant nuclear fusion. Yes,
0: I had no. It was idea. also a cool restaurant <laughs> in the nineties. <'90s, laughs> yeah. uh, that's why I thought you were going to right Jones Street. No, I'm sorry. Yes, nuclear <laughs> fusion power. Okay. Secondly, start of the new year, your first thought is fusion. This is the year. Not, you know, like, can I not drink for a week? Or something like a regular, like, New Year's resolution. That's what that's where your mind is. You're I'm like going big, baby. I know. Someone has to. Well, Quite
1: Oppenheimer nice. did just win a bunch of awards. Maybe you were oh, just we in go. the nuclear headspace.
2: It's true. That movie, I, I think that movie rules. I never actually Tune in saw to it. my podcast. <laughs> oh, you totally have to. <laughs> People will have some spare time when they stop listening to this one. Uh, Alright,
0: I've got one. I still need to see that film though. One for you real quick. Completing Tetris. Did you guys see this story? Mm-mm. Max yeah, did. Evelyn did. didn't. Some of you may have. Some of you might not have. So, Soviet software engineer Alexey Pajitnov created Tetris in 1985. That wasn't the story I was reading, Um, but just for context, it was released by Nintendo four years later. You guys have probably heard of Tetris. Big deal. According to the Tetris company, uh, over 500 million units of Tetris have been sold worldwide, which makes it one of the top selling games of all time. And a few weeks ago, this is the story, 13-year-old Willis Gibson of Oklahoma became the first person believed to ever beat the original Nintendo version of Tetris. As uh, Dibba Motasham of NPR Explains, 38 years after Tetris was released, Gibson ended up advancing so far that the game itself could not keep up with him, and at level 157 he reached the notorious Kill Screen, the point in the game where it becomes unplayable because of limitations with the game's original programming. It took him less than 39 minutes from when he started the game to, like, started playing this particular stint, to completing, to crashing the game. There's a YouTube video of him, um, which we'll, uh, if we can, we'll put a link in the show notes because it's amazing. YouTube video, you have to watch the whole 40-minute video. Fast forward to towards the end, Uh, the YouTube video showing him beating the game. He freezes in shock and then says, I can't even tell my mum because she's at work. Um, (laughs) It's pretty damn heartwarming. Yeah, his score on the screen read uh, that he'd maxed out. There's a maxed out figure of 999999. But Gibson says his actual final score was 68 Million. How big of a deal is this? Up until now, only AI had been attributed with reaching the kill screen. For context, Gibson has played in tournaments since 2021. And in October, he was the youngest person to make it to the classic Tetris World Championship, where he placed third. He's been playing since he was 11 years old. He's now 13, plays about three to five hours a day. And this is the best part of it. It's really amazing. He dedicated the record setting win to his father, Adam Gibson, who died last month just i just thought this was such a nice story i mean there's the dedication to his father which is just beautiful but then also there's that kind of anything's possible moment right like everyone's played at least one arcade video game the idea of completing it doesn't ever like cross your mind and now it can or really like doing anything and i just thought this was a yeah a really special moment great story boy willis Indeed. Anyway, that's all we've got time for for this episode. Congratulations to you. uh, And a huge thank you to my guests today. Thank you to Ross. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you to Evelyn.
1: Thank you, Marcus. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you to Max. Always a pleasure, Marcus. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Thank you to Victoria, who edits the show. James, who copy edits it. Stuart, who runs the team. Sophie, who does our social media. And Lance, who runs our video podcast. Thanks to everyone for listening in. We'll see you, hopefully, on Tuesday for the Behind the Numbers Daily, an eMarketer podcast. Happy long
3: MLK weekends you're like a real price is right here coming up with like new little (sighs) contests all the time (laughs) this has become my life plinko
2: a test (laughs) (laughs) what did you say Ross? a trial
3: plinko (laughs) you know the they drop the thing and it goes you watch the price is right ever oh no oh.
0: <laughs> I know the reference but I don't know I know that's the show but I don't I didn't watch it okay yeah sorry
3: right. um,
0: <laughs> this is how most things land with me in America oh my yeah God. I,
3: I don't know if yeah, that probably didn't <laughs> do well in syndication overseas yeah yeah <laughs>